and talking to our friends. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. And I'm Danielle. And I'm Matt Strackbein. Hey, hey, Matt. Thanks for joining us again. Welcome back, Matt. Yeah, thank you. Hey, gang. I always weekly ask for reviews. Give us some reviews on iTunes or any podcasting service that you're listening to us on. Everything that we do on the show is free, and we put a lot of work into it, so we appreciate any kind of feedback. Check out our pals at Mignolaverse.com. They've got their May 2019 podcast up. Thanks again, you damn guys. Danny LaPlante for using an Only Beast track as the intro. There was also a little bit of uh, stuff on social media this week regarding all the Mignola fakes out there. Did you guys see uh, that? Yeah, man. So, mm-hmm. so man, I saw that. people have been selling Mignola sketches, supposedly Mignola sketches, on eBay. Well, no, yeah, they're they're fakes and they're really bad tracings. Yeah. And it's actually just there's this one specific guy who does it a lot. Right, and, and I think that he makes other accounts yeah, too once his accounts get squashed. Exactly, and so Mike Mignola's been trying to get eBay to address this for years years right and years and it's been a huge ongoing thing where people will post a sketch like hey he's at it again right this is yeah. a real bad fake and then he'll go on there uh mike Manuel himself will go on there and be like yeah this is super fake and and it really pisses me off and right it's, i mean it's really upsetting and so they apparently got this guy's account taken down but i mean who knows how long it'll be till he just gets another one back right and, yeah and i and It's just an all-around problem, you know, even if it's not that guy. You always have to worry about if the stuff that you're buying is legit, if it's uh, really been drawn by Mignola. And so I thought this was really cool. If you follow Mignola on Twitter or Facebook or any of the social medias, he actually shared an email address. And he said, if you're going to buy something and you're worried about if it's not for me or not, you can always email me the listing and I will tell you if it's genuine or not. So I thought that was really cool. But just, you know, buyer beware when you're out there. We all want to original piece of Mignola art, but I saw some of these fakes that they sold for like $500, $600, you know, so, yeah, so that's insane, but one of the guys on the Mike Mignola's art, I thought he had such a great response to this whole thing, so he bid, outbid everybody, he bid like $2,000, oh, I saw that, and one. then he didn't pay ah. for it, and then he reported it to eBay, and he, oh, and he emailed the guy, too, and he said, this is a fake, and I'm not paying for it, and I'm not gonna let anybody else pay for it, either, and then uh, that guy blocked him. You uh, know what I mean? I started watching him, too, because I was thinking, I'm going to fucking do that. Oh, if shit. I see another one up there, and I think that we should all do that. But if what are we... the chances, though, that you're on the hook for $2,000 fucking dollars? Because you point? just reported to eBay that it's a fake, that right. it's not authentic. And I think he even, I think this guy that did it on Mike Mignola, he even sent eBay the stuff from Mignola and the stuff from the forum on Facebook kind of saying, this is fake, where everybody wow. was talking about it. So. You know, he had some evidence behind him and then he didn't have to pay it. And I thought that was such a great way to kind of not let anybody else get damaged by that either. You know what I mean? I mean, I guess you could say, oh, well, fuck it. If you're not smart enough to realize this is a fake. But I'm like, no, no, this this guy doesn't deserve money. You know, he doesn't deserve money for this. So anyway, just buyer beware. You know what? Pass off your fucking traces as Mike Mignola's. Right. Yeah. So fucking foul. You're right. This guy has been doing this for a long time yeah uh you know or or somebody has and that just goes to show that okay i'm glad ebay took the account down but he'll just make another one yeah so it boils down to like a violation of the policy when you make an account on ebay right and so you know where are the legal consequences not not that i'm a legal expert in these matters but 
this is plagiarism and uh yeah so know, false I, advertising all that stuff like at least it's a huge contact, scam yeah yeah contact his internet service provider or something oh yeah i guess yeah oh. that is also another route that you could take since it's fraudulent material yeah i mean he's, yeah. he is saying a specific artist did this thing so is that some sort of defamatory like right, i don't, I don't yeah. know what kind of laws that would apply to because it's could, it could fall under false advertising right because he didn't draw that mm. stuff so i don't know yeah. if that's like if, if like if i said this is an original stan lee sketch Maybe, like could uh, stan lee's estate right. come after me yeah. what i about, don't know what about, like that's what about counterfeiting laws because it's like counterfeiting right art. exactly right. yeah exactly and oh so yeah yeah because when... that's a whole thing people used to try and counterfeit the fucking monets and shit right yeah. and sell those mm-hmm. yeah um, so w- one thing that i was looking at if you go to ebay like i actually went to the item and then i hit report this item and then when you hit report this item there's a drop down menu and it has like you know authenticity a fake or not right, not right. genuine product and this and that so you can click through those drop downs and you can select that you know that it's falling under these categories of being a fake or saying that something's genuine when it's not do you think that's a, it's a, like a volume thing like if enough people do it ebay will be like all right well, well i think I, I, I think in this case a bunch of people did it plus mignola was Himself, posting on yeah. facebook that he was on the phone with them so yeah. he yeah. was also like and then later he added eBay on Twitter and said, thanks for taking care yeah. of that. So I guess that they yeah. eventually took care of it. But still, you know, and Mignolaverse.com, they also had an article on how to spot a fake. And so, right. you know, if you want to look at that, too. But in my opinion, you know, email Mignola at that email address and he'll tell you himself whether it's a legit He's product. He's very generous with well, his time and he'll he'll point it out. He'll be like, yeah, that's a fake. I'm not going to. I also want to point out this also happens to like just about every artist because yeah. I um, I'm friends with and I follow some of the artists at Torcons and yeah. they post stuff like about getting people reprinting their stuff and trying to sell it <laughs> on eBay all the time. Right. And this one, I got I got Kathy a uh, this one print and it's a digital like so she can sell multiple copies. But the one that I have her is slightly different than the other ones because I paid commission for it. And then some guy was like trying to pass it off as a fake, saying like I had the, they had the original one, blah blah blah. On their wow. Wall. And of course, you know she posted about it on facebook you know the artist did right and like you know everybody went and reported him as a scam but i mean it's just crazy how it happens like, yeah you know, like it, it happens like to somebody with the resources of mike mignola who can actually fight a little bit and then you get to think about the smaller guys who are just working the con just trying right to make a living. oh yeah i yeah. wish i could go and steal all of his shoes and then scatter legos throughout his house <laughs> <laughs> that seems like an appropriate thing <laughs> we'll get the ebay police on that yeah all right, and now we're going to move on to some listener feedback. Hey, damn guys. Hellboy comics and talking to our friends. Hellboy book club is very, very We got a Hey You Damn Guys from Justin Brander. He said, hello there. I've been a listener since the beginning and figured it was time to write in. Hello, Justin. Yeah. First, thank you for taking the time to do this podcast book club. It's nice to have people to talk about this awesome series of stories. I have tried and failed to get any of my friends to read the books despite knowing that they will fully enjoy it. From their perspective, I must look like Professor O'Donnell raving on about Cothahan. <laughs> Only it's me holding a stack of like 50 trades, screaming, read it, read it, read it. As far as my three favorite characters, we all love HB, Liz, and Abe and the others. 
but they have nothing without a good nemesis. And so I thought this was interesting. Justin ranked his top three villains. All right. Which we haven't done, so I like that spin on it. He said... Number one, the Black Flame from Pope's uh. Armored Sack. <laughs> right, Matt's not happy about that. Man. Well, we're considering, I think I think what he's saying is like how effective right. at being a villain. Sure. And since we hate him so fucking much, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, right? No, that's the number one guy that yeah. we hate, right? So. And he says, from yeah. Pope's Armored Suit debut in the boardroom throughout the various evolutions, he is one of the coolest looking characters. Terrifying and dangerous. Number two, the Ogdruhem. There is a certain point in the series when shit gets real and the true extent of the threat becomes apparent. There are some of the best creature designs here and the scale of these things is awesome. And three, Hecate. I love how her influence extends throughout the series, under and behind the various characters. Her different forms are great. Who would have thought combining a witch, snake, and an iron maiden would work so well? That's all for now. Looking forward to the next episode. So thank you so much, Justin. What do you think? Book are, club member. Yeah, book club member from the beginning. What What are some of your favorite villains that we've encountered so far, you guys? I like when shits get real. You- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I guess I would have to say I put uh, Hecate at number one. Yeah, uh, Hecate's awesome. Even though like, um, I, I'm intrigued by the Black Flame for no particular reason. No, I like Hecate, yeah. But uh, yeah, no, just something about Hecate. Oh, man, who else has there been? Uh, Rasputin, oh, yeah. yeah, for sure, classic. I, I, I have favorite. a, I have a fondness for, uh, I have a fondness for Bromhead. Okay, that slimy Igor Bromhead. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's kind of a little weasel. I yeah. like him. He's just kind of one of those characters that you love to hate. What sure. did you did you say Rasputin was your favorite, Matt? Yeah, my second favorite would be Vavara. But, oh, um, oh yeah. Vavara, yeah, and yeah, and it's hard to consider her like, far, like a traditional villain, maybe, kind of right? Thing? Yeah. I kind of yeah. came to really like Vivara. Didn't really consider Vivara as quite a villain. Yeah, but that's mm. a good one. That's but, yeah. a great one. I like yeah. um, uh, Grogak. Yeah. yeah. Oh my god, yeah. he's great. Yeah, absolutely. Somebody who started off as kind of a, a whiny no way ended off as a big badass nobody. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I well, what the Blood Queen? Yeah, oh, Nimue. Yeah. We didn't talk Nimue. about good her one. either. Those are all good. Yeah, great villains. Thank you so much for that suggestion, Justin. You I can just, really judge a story by their villains. Yeah. yeah. Sorry, Aubrey. What you no, mean? I was just saying, I also like the fact that, you know, we're not like oversaturated with like the same villain over and over no, again. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's you good. Know? Although uh, I will say, I don't get tired of the evil wizard thing. No, of course you not. You know what I mean? Yeah. But sometimes you need a break from the evil wizard for a little <laughs> bit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At Jester Duffy on Twitter said, Hey, book club, you guys are going to be the best people to ask. I just finished Hell on Earth and I've got all the Abe omnibuses to hit now. Do we know of any other standalone trade paperbacks that will be released or Omnis, or should I try to hunt them all down? Thanks, dudes. Love the show. So I know that they've talked about Witchfinder. They're going to do omnibuses for that, and they're also going to do omnibuses for Baltimore. I think everybody is really itching for some Lobster Johnson omnibuses, yeah. Oh, yeah. but I don't think those yeah. have been announced yet. Right. Do you know of any other books that are coming out, Matt? No. Um, I'm always waiting for Lobster Johnson to be announced, but I, I have the single issues. I buy the library editions. Nice. Um, but I will get the Witchfinder stuff for sure. Yeah, I think I'm going to get the Witchfinder stuff, but I almost have all the Baltimores. I'm only missing one of those hardcovers, and I actually have all the ones that are difficult to find, so I might... I might not get those, but I don't know. We'll, we'll see. We'll see. And also, what other people are wanting, too, is like Sledgehammer 44, Rise of the Black Flame, BPRD Being Human. Like, a lot of those stories have not been collected, and those trades are really hard to find now. Oh, yeah. So, it would be good if they released, like, I don't know, maybe a catch-all where they have, like, 
some of these other ancillary stories like all collected into one omnibus would also be pretty cool i just had a thought like you you know that from the midnight circus where hellboy's like but lobster's the greatest yeah she's she's trying to get him to like read some pinocchio, pinocchio or right. something and he just wants to read lobster giant he's, he's like but lobster's the greatest you yeah should, like you should make a post that says how i feel when there's still no lobster johnson <laughs> an omnibus announcement yes that would be great put that panel I will, I will totally make that post yeah you know can can we just go back to justin's letter for a second yeah. sure sure yeah. yeah of course book club member Hopefully he's listening. Can we get him to agree that the Black Flame was ultimately just totally pathetic so and, and a huge loser? Please. You heard it yourself from Matt, Justin. So write in and give us an additional piece of feedback so you can confirm that. Or start a online war with Matt. <laughs> I think when you're talking oh, about yeah. like villains, there's two categories of villains. There's villains you love to hate and then there's villains that you're like yeah i enjoy this right person and well they will probably eventually become an anti-hero so i don't think i think when you're saying like oh best villains it's like what are the villains that made you fucking feel something right yeah even mm-hmm. if that something was horrible <laughs> which is their job right yeah like that's, sure sure so you've got villains and you've got antagonists and you've got anti-heroes so you've got like a bunch of different flavors going yeah. on and i would doubt very much that he likes the black flame as far as yeah this guy is great i am on board with everything he's doing yeah you know what no I, mean? right. <laughs> I agree but all discussions about the black flame should end with something very negative about him well i uh, that's all I, I will have to say though i do like the design of black flame even, right. even if he is a wiener <laughs> yeah that, that's what i was going to say is i i really love the design and the look of him I had the Black Flame issue three as my desktop for the longest time for my Don't desktop you. background. And people would say, oh, is that Ghost Rider? It makes me so mad. And so I just stopped yeah. using it as a background. But I do like how his outfit is so cool. His whole look is really interesting. But then at the end, he's like, oh, I made a mistake. Please help. Like, he's, he is a loser in the end of that story arc in the Plague Matt's of Frogs. Matt's going to come yeah. over here and Thank kick you. all our asses. <laughs> and, and didn't he do- well, for a villain that has a skull for a head, I mean, that's been done so many times. Sure. But, like, but, so they really did nail the design. I mean, it is worth doing because it's got so much originality to it. Right. Yeah, I just think that, like... Scott Alley would send me random images of the Black Flame rendered by other artists uh-huh. out there in the world. <laughs> and he would always say, you got to admit, looks pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> what a troll. Because <laughs> he knows as soon as I like open the and, and image, I'm like, going to go, what the hell? I do not under any circumstances <laughs> got to hand it to him. Absolutely yeah. not. <sighs> yeah, it's unsolicited. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that is Aww. too good. And so last week, you know... We had kind of a little surprise last week because we had two episodes in one week. Our discussion went a little long and about halfway through I was like, maybe we're going to have to split this into two episodes. So I think that worked out really well. And so I gave the listeners one episode a day early and then we, we got another one in the week. And so we had some good feedback on that. Jerry Turnbull was very kind. I told him this is not going to be a regular Jerry thing. Turnbull. And he said, you have my permission to do it regularly. The book club is my favorite thing. Looking forward to the next show. More than anything I'm watching on TV, even Chernobyl. So I thought that was so sweet. You know what I mean? Because that's like one of the greatest shows. So thank you so much, Jerry. You got to name your kid Hellboy Book Club Podcast. (laughs) 
<laughs> or at least your next pet. Yeah. Clayton Schofield at Sir Edward Gray on Twitter said, what? We get to open presents on Christmas Eve now? Sure feels like it. Thanks for the early drop, you damn guys. Aww. And then later when I posted the Thursday episode, he said, hey, damn guys, thanks for this. Been a crazy roller coaster of a week and I needed this. It's the Boxing Day Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> nice and drew campbell we talked about how he had worked us into his schedule and he posted that right oh right he said just to clarify the picture i posted last week was of a nielsen's ratings listening journal nice. they select random people to send you a journal to record what you listen to for the week i think it really meant for radio ratings but i couldn't pass up giving you guys a name drop Aww. Aww. Uh, awesome. so thank you that was really awesome uh, cool yeah. friendship Man, when I was in the kid in the 80s, I always wanted to be one of those Nielsen houses. Right, yeah. I was like, that would be so cool. <laughs> be like, none of my shows will get canceled now. <laughs> and at DJ Alpha T said, at Hellboy Book Club, still catching up. Now on episode 41, when it comes to vampires, I would strongly recommend the Anno Dracula books by Anno Dracula and the Historian by Elizabeth Kostova. Have you heard of any of those books? Vampire no. books, no? Looks no. pretty interesting, so I have to check those I've out. I've never really sought out any sort of vampire media. It's always just sort of seeps into my life somehow because it's so, like, it's permeated the culture so much, like, social culture. It's just such a... It ends up just, like, right. becoming part of my life whether I want it to or not. I know... <laughs> about vampires and these various vampire books and shows and shit but no right. i haven't heard that stuff yeah no i'll have to check I, those out i used to seek out vampire stuff when i was like late teens early 20s and sure. i was going through this whole man i wish i were goth phase <laughs> <laughs> i think at that point that's just your your grandfathered in and you become goth right yeah <laughs> no, I just... see i was a goth kid that was very much not ever into any vampire stuff so it, it made me for kind of a little bit of right a, I don't know about any of this, but I guess I have to endure it. Like, it's one of those things that it was just sort of, it's uh, the word for when it's running alongside. Parallel? No, it's like a. Uh, that is literally the motion you're making with your hands is yeah, parallel lines. Yeah, I'll never think of what I'm trying to say. <laughs> what was I going to say? Oh, Vampire Hunter D. I used to be really into that, oh, that man. anime. Did you ever watch that, Matt? Oh, yeah, definitely. I'm long-term anime fan. Oh, okay. Adjacent. Adja oh, there you go. <laughs> it's the word. And I had to talk about this listener feedback. We're gonna, we had some more feedback on The Long Death. But before we get to that, Plague of Crows on Instagram sent me this really awesome message. I was talking to Matt about it earlier in the Best week. Best plague ever. Yeah. And he pointed out to me the Baltimore Volume 3 hardcover book, which I have. He posted this thing that I've never seen before. So Baltimore, we haven't got to that series, but it's drawn by Stenbeck, which we've seen Ben Stenbeck's art on some other series with uh, Witchfinder. And in the back of the book, he has all these pinups. It says, Ben did this image for an online promotion with Multiversity.com, celebrating the debut of Abe Sapien Dark and Terrible, which we haven't got to yet. And there's this pinup. And it's showing the Bendigo with Abe. Oh, wow. Oh, shit. And it's the Wendigo, but he's got that half mouth thing, and he's oh. got like the leopard spots all over him. Oh, so is this confirmation that the Bendigo exists, or know. did Stenbeck just do this as a fun promotional? And I sent this to you, Matt. What did you think when you were looking at this? Well, first of all, I was blown away. I have never seen that. Yeah. <laughs> Me neither. I'm going to take it as confirmation that... Yeah. Bendigo's out there because I don't know. I feel like why would he draw that and it was fully rendered in color? So we think if, this is canon. Yeah, but look at the blood on his fur. Right, he's killing 
humanely. He's he's not murdering. Right, right. right. So he's he's killing in the way Daryl did, and I think that's cool. Yeah, so, you know, a bunch of listeners said that they hope that the Bendigo went out there and fought some monsters for a little bit or something. So, yeah, maybe we'll come back and see this character someday. I don't know. I was blown away by this image. Okay, I will accept that as canon unless that thing came out on April 1st. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and so I'll probably scan this image and post it this week. So uh, if you don't have Baltimore Volume 3, you'll still be able to look at this awesome picture by Stenbeck. It's got Abe and the Bendigo and some crazy monster behind them. So thanks, Plague of Crows, for sharing that with us. So how long have you had that trait? I've been collecting them, but I actually haven't read them uh, because I'm waiting to get all of them to, so that way I can just sit down and binge the whole thing. And I just haven't had time. There's been some other stuff that I've been reading, too. Oh, I understand. I have a, a series that I've been trying to click the trades on, and once I get them, I'll read them. Right, yeah. We had some more feedback on The Long Death. Nick Stewart, send us an email. Hey, guys, had a quick comment on The Long Death, unless I missed it when listening to the episode. I don't think anyone brought up the link between Johan and Jiroko's discussion on the baptism of her son, and we did talk about that a little bit last week. Mark Tweedell pointed that out to us. Nick Stewart said, I think the parallel is there to show that at the end of the series, Johan is making an effort to forgive Daimyo for the problems he had caused and move on. And so I thought that was a good, that was an interesting interpretation of that because they were, he was out to kill him and it was this whole revenge thing. And so maybe that kind of wrapped it up for, you know, obviously Daimyo appeared dead there, but also maybe that's wrapped it up for Johan and he can move on now too. Oh, that's, I guess I kind of took that as that. Yeah, that he has moved on after, I mean, seeing Daimyo dead. Right. At DJ Alpha T said, Johan's powers, when he's controlling dead bodies, do you think he feels pain? He must have sensations if he can use the muscles. When the corpse and the moose body are being torn apart by the were-jaguar, do you think he feels it? Oh, interesting. I don't... Uh... That's a good question, because he could feel, um, when he inhabited uh, that one body that Daimyo killed, you know, he talked about feeling pleasure and pain and all that stuff, but unless the nerve endings are dead. Right, yeah. What did you think of that, Matt? I don't think he does. Remember when he got the suit from the Russians? Mm-hmm. He said uh, it's got knuckles elbows it made him feel like he could feel i think right yeah and then he started dreaming too yeah yeah i don't think he literally feels although it's pretty dramatic you know he could probably have like phantom pain right yeah yeah i thought that was interesting because if he does like how could he even bear it like think about that guy that was missing a leg and then shot himself in the head like wouldn't johan be like Oh my 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 head hurts because a oh, bullet right. just you know what I mean like mm-hmm. would he even be able to get up and fight the thing if he was like in shock from having been shot in the head and missing a leg you know what I mean yeah, so that's probably yeah not. it's kind of a yeah. weird gray area good question though regarding the long death we had some more feedback on that at unruly Ian on Twitter said such a good and tragic story poor Ben poor Daryl at Imperious Rex show said love this one an all time fave. And at Ono Duranin said, my favorite BPRD story. Ross Radke said, all right now, you damn guys have finally gotten to James Heron on BPRD. I can finally ramble about his art for a bit. I first came across his work on deviant art of all places when he was drawing manga-influenced Venoms and Kirby weirdness. When I got to The Long Death... This was the first sequential work of his that I'd seen, and it was obvious he'd leveled up. His combining of elements from manga and Western comic influences was truly original and resonated my own artistic sensibilities. There are many artists I greatly admire, from Mignola to Alex Ross, who I don't feel compelled to imitate. I wouldn't say I wanted to rip off Heron's style, 
but it sort of hits me like if this guy can draw comics like this maybe i can draw comics my way whatever that is like the music of prince or david bowie how can such a unique voice be so universally respected I got the chance to meet him at the first Emerald City Comic Con I attended in 2015, and I showed him some of my work and picked his brain. Turns out he's a hell of a cool guy as well. He's taken time to give me some really helpful feedback on my work a couple times since then, and just seems like a really humble guy. That's so nice. I always love that when yeah. when artists yeah. can mm-hmm. you know take the time to really discuss that with you. I think that's so generous. Right. And so I always really appreciate that too. So that's that's so cool. That's awesome. And he said another thing I want to mention is seeing his original art in person was really illuminating. It's a beautiful mess. Splotches, splatters, whiteout, pasteovers. Like I said, my first Comic-Con, first time seeing any original art in person. I had no idea it could look so, for lack of a better word, rough. It was liberating to see how the energy of the final published pages came to be. And he posted some pictures of our Twitter that he took of James Heron's originals on there. And you can kind of see some of that that... It's not perfect. He yeah. worked over it. He whited stuff out and drew over it and pasted stuff over. And so Ross said, I've been struggling with my own inking and recently made the switch to digital to overcome that mental roadblock. Somewhat paradoxically, seeing Heron and other artists work made me realize that there's no wrong or right way to draw. I just needed to embrace what worked. The Hellboy and BPRD books have had a ton of amazing artists, and I've been able to meet a handful of them over the years. But Heron was the first to go above and beyond with constructive feedback. And for that, I'll always be a fan. Yeah, so that was a great bit of feedback, Ross. Thank you so much. That was pretty cool. We had some feedback on Pickens County Horror. When I posted the teaser, NDN Funkadelic said, Time to grab my copy from the local shop and enjoy my weekly dose of awesome podcasting. Hashtag Kill the Black Flame. Hashtag (laughs) Hellboy Book Club. Hashtag Hey You Damn Guys. Hashtag Sorry for the Amounts of Hashtags. Uh I thought that was really (laughs) funny. Thank you so much, NDN. It's good to hear from you again. So I posted the covers from Becky Cloonan and I talked about how we'd love to see Becky come back to the Mignolaverse. Patrick Yoker said, totally agree. She's a perfect fit. Barbarian Lord said, oh man, yes, Becky rules. And so Barbarian Lord is Matt Smith. He did like Ape Sapien versus Science and some of the other earlier stories. So I thought it was great to get a comment from him. That's cool. And then we also had a comment from Dan Wolf. He said, 100% with you on that. I'll tell her the next time I see her. Nice. Yeah. Mark Tweedell said, I've wanted Becky Cloonan to do a Hellboy Universe story for ages. Hopefully something with werewolves. In her personal work, she has such a beautiful take on romantic horror. Jerry Turnbull said, I like the BPRD belt buckle that Hellboy wears. We haven't seen that since the early days. Yeah, so that was a nice little detail when they do that flashback. Nice. So when they do that flashback, they talk about that they didn't get the sea monster and Abe Sapien had to go back and get it. Right. And at Adrian Robinson said, Abe Sapien went back and got it all by himself. I'm not mistaken, but that sounds like a callback to the Haunted Boy. And so I was thinking about that, too, because remember Abe went and got that thing out of the water and it was some crazy monster or something like that? Right. Mm. So I actually looked into that. Vaughn and Hellboy, they went into the woods in 83, and then Abe did the Haunted Boy in 82. So it doesn't Uh. quite line up, you know, with the timeline. But I, I would love to see a connection there of what that mission looks like. Jan Niklas said, nothing much to say about this story besides that we get teased about the vampire apocalypse. I want that to happen. Just for the one scene where the vampires look at a car, cry, face me, monster, and get run over by a McDonald's food truck, and the other vampires are like, we waited too long, you maniacs, you blew it up. (laughs) 
Fun story. I liked it. <laughs> so they wouldn't know like what any of that stuff was. Oh man, it actually reminds me of an episode of uh, Buffy where they raise this like monster from like thousands of years ago. They reassembled him, and he's all like, "No weapon made by man can destroy me." And she's like, well, that was then, this is now, and then she shoots him with a bazooka or a rocket launcher. He's all like, what's that? <laughs> I love stuff like that. Jason Abaddon said, Matt's notions of BPRD in the streets is so dead on because the core characters are very removed from the reality of things in their mountain fortress and its impact for most people. From here on, we see more and more street-level horrors and how average people deal with all the sort of Walking Dead narrative parallel to the big picture story. He also said, You guys were talking about consequences for the characters. When I met Mignola and Scott Alley, Mignola talked about how they were writing stories not making properties. He mentioned how, You know Spider-Man isn't going to die. So some of the drama is missing. Yeah, so I thought that was... And we talked a little bit about that last week, I think, too. Ross Radke said, the first time I read these BPRD on the street stories, I felt impatient. I wanted to rush to what I assumed would be getting the band back together with Abe, Liz, and Hellboy. Revisiting them, I realized how important world building was being done and how fun the stories actually are. It's something comics can do better than nearly any other medium, these detours. A one-shot featuring a supportive character, a prequel series, etc. TV is getting close with streaming changing the paradigm of how people consume media. The closest thing I can think of is what David Lynch and Mark Frost have done with the Twin Peaks shows, movies, and books, which have connections to the other Lynch films. The cross-media, non-linear storytelling can have a tendency to weed out all but the most hardcore fans, but the success of Marvel has shown that general audiences can be groomed to engage with the sort of storytelling on a more casual level with less esoteric narratives. The Hellboy BPRD universe feels like the logical evolution and fulfillment of the promise of Lee, Kirby, and Co.'s shared Marvel universe, stripped of the cyclical illusion of change. Yeah, so I thought that was some great feedback. I've kind of felt the same way going back and reading some of these shorter stories and BPRD in the street stories where I'm like, oh, something that I might have just skipped over trying to get to the next thing now has a lot more meat to it, you know? Yeah, I, I wanted the band to get back together too in a way, and the more that didn't happen... The more I realized that's what makes the stories they are telling work so well. Right. Yeah. Because because you feel the impact of the band not getting back together. I guess it's like, you know, because I'm just reading these as with the podcast, but just like hearing you guys talk about how like the band's not getting back together anytime soon. I just feel like, all right, I'm going to sit back and enjoy the story. Yeah, really. Um, and it, it's been it's been really neat. It's been an experience to um, see it from other people's point of view who aren't normally your main characters. Yeah, and, um, well, I have a comment, but I think I'll, I'll save it for later. Just to follow up to what I was saying, the creators, it, it's not like they're keeping all the good stuff from you. It's not like they're withholding all the things that readers want. There are some truly rewarding moments yeah. down the line. Yeah, big big payoff. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, like, I, I guess the way I'm thinking it is, is that, you know, it's like you guys are all like, okay, be patient, it's coming, but... Um, just sit back and enjoy it. Yeah. And just, mm-hmm. you know, sample from the other parts of the table. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Right. Right. We had some feedback on transformation of J.H. O'Donnell. Drew Campbell said, I think it's interesting that Matt brought up Dr. Carp's experiment as a parallel to the transformation of J.H. O'Donnell because I kept thinking that this story is an inversion of the classic Hellboy story. It's usually Hellboy that would have some kind of secret adventure while his partner remains oblivious, as in Dr. Carp, but here Hellboy sleeps while Professor O'Donnell makes a discovery. I kind of wonder if the bug guys meant for Hellboy to be the one who discovered the secret library, but he screwed it up by falling asleep. 
But anyway, I'm so glad for this story, not just because it adds more depth to the character that has been a source of comic relief. It also seemed kind of strange that Professor O'Donnell knows so much that no one else seems to know. Other characters tend to dismiss him when he starts raving, but we as readers can generally see that he's right about whatever he's talking about. But how does he know so much? Surely there are other researchers, especially at the BPRD, who could obtain the same information, right? But now with this story, we find out that he actually does have knowledge that no one else has access to, which serves to make him a more believable character. And that's also kind of ties back to like the path of the shaman. Like there's... There's one weird guy kind yeah. of that stays on the outside of town, and everyone's like, okay, that's your job. You go be weird, and we'll make sure to try and take care of you while you're being weird, because we value this, even though it's you're super different from everyone else, we value this knowledge right. that you have, and we value its impact on, on all of our lives. So that's kind of another... Yeah, Sorry, I just got to like interject with my ranting. <laughs> that's my... okay. It's good. Good stuff. Well, and it's like Devon was saying in The Long Death, he was hired to be a researcher, Right, right yeah. 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 And it you could just feel the whole bureau is shifting toward defense. Right, yeah. Even um, Kate, yeah, she was a professor yeah. also. Mm-hmm. So if, if there were any researchers, you know, they just don't need them right now. They need to suit up, get a gun, and hit the streets. Right, yes. <laughs> Jen Niklas said, O'Donnell is fun. Jen Niklas. A classic horror story a la Lovecraft, but again, without the racism and more devils, yay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> with our overcurious hero drinking too much from the forbidden soda can of knowledge. But it is kind of a happy end because now the BPRD can use it for good, and O'Donnell, who would have gone cuckoo anyway because of academia, am I right? Just shows that nothing in this world comes without a price. Jason Abaddon said, The transformation of J.H. O'Donnell was a tragedy and is one of my favorite BPRD stories. It really shows how the scholarly side of the agency is not equipped to deal with fieldwork and guys like O'Donnell and Devon suffer lasting percussion. That's kind of what you just talked about, Matt. I wonder how much of Devon's dickishness is PTSD and lasting insecurities from his public embarrassments. Crap, am I now empathetic to Devon? No, you're just being scientific. (laughs) (laughs) He said, I wonder if O'Donnell didn't trade his soul for knowledge. If so, the bug monster thing may refer to the House of the Fly. Yeah, so I didn't think about that. House of the Fly. Yeah, that's one of the houses in hell that we've that's been mentioned a couple times. Hmm. It's also interesting that Raskin is a bit derisive in her recollection about Hellboy. Usually when he's mentioned, it's hero worship. She makes it seem like he was kind of a nuisance. Oh, and the part where Raskin says, and he was responsible... I think refers to Broom taking responsibility for O'Donnell's care after that. Doubtless, Broom had a that-could-have-been-me guilt about the whole thing. Right, yeah, because if he had gone to go do it, that would have happened to him. And I think we we talked about that, too. Ross Radke said, Both the Fermara brothers are great, but I particularly like Max's styled anatomy. Along with Heron, he really inspires me to push my cartooning to more unique features. Also, gotta love Goya, because we talked about that painting, Witch's Flight. Yep. But seriously, I enjoyed your talk about the black paintings. They are super disturbing, and the dog is one of my favorite paintings. It's so melancholy compared to the more overt horror of the rest. So I looked up that one, the dog, and it's just a dog's head like looking up kind of sadly at something. And the rest of the painting is mostly background. It's a really interesting piece. So yeah, thank you, Ross, for that. Wes Mattis on Instagram said, So love crafting in this story. I think this short story shows the most HP influence out of the majority of the Mignolaverse. And when I posted about the hooded bug people terrorizing O'Donnell, Jason Abaddon said, 
I think we've all been to this kind of party, the kind where you slowly back out of the room and run for it. Sure. <laughs> and Wes Mattis, he replied to that and he said, and I always forget my black robe. I lay it out every time, but I leave without it. <laughs> that was pretty good. Some feedback on the abyss of time. We got a hey you damn guys from Paul from Gardahan. Hey. <laughs> great episode as always. It's great that we have reached Howard's and Denar. I have two thoughts. And the second thought was spoilery, so I'm not going to address that one today. But he did say, we all make the assumption that Galdenar is from prehistoric time, but what if it is actually post-apocalyptic Ragnarok era where the Ogdruhem monsters walk the earth? Sure. Yeah, we didn't talk about that, so that's an interesting interpretation of that. I am fully on board with that theory. Yeah. <laughs> Jan Niklas said... Although... Go ahead. Didn't we see... Um him like get the uh, sword the gardener's father got it from the uh hyperborean uh ruins right yeah but maybe those ruins are in the future good point i mean uh, i'm not i'm not against because the well because thadadries was there right it could ah. be the ruin of thadadries because we saw Ooh, that in the black goddess anyway point. ah see no see see makes the theory work better <laughs> jen niklas said the abyss of time is also another favorite of mine it's just so wonderfully simple guy with sword kills monsters and talks like every pulpy sword and sorcery hero ever perfect i love it still waiting for the howards the barbarian miniseries i think this story is also an homage to Almeric by Robert E. Howard and The Dark World by C.L. Moore and Henry Kuttner. In both, a guy from Earth lands on another world and slashes through the bodies of his enemies to victory. Almeric is more of a power fantasy for young boys. It's kind of stupid and trashy, but I love it. And The Dark World has such a dreamlike quality to it, I'm almost sure Moore and Kuttner had tried to do something deep. Because the main character of The Dark World was a World War II veteran, and he has to choose between two sides. Like choosing between being a monster or a man. Where have we heard that before? Mm-hmm. Good stuff. I would give it a try. It's also pleasantly short. What I also loved about Abyss of Time is that it had opened another possibility for the pulpy fantasy stories just because. Cool monsters and cool people with weapons. And I like Danielle's idea that it could be kind of an alternative world story and not just set in the past. I mean, personally, I think that it's set in the past, but maybe this is just another alternate universe in which Howard the Barbarian has to fight in the world. And let me clarify that a little bit, because I don't necessarily... I don't know if I'm always good at articulating what I'm talking about, because what I'm talking about is generally, most of the time, not in line with what other people think of when they hear the words that I'm saying. So, um, like, as far as realities go or timelines or whatever like i it's just it's hard to describe because it's like reality is not what we think it is it's never that simple and so we look around at each other and we're like hey that's that guy and that's that guy but is it and it's like you see red one way and i might see red another way right but we're both seeing red right but it's also like there's a veil that we're not aware of most of the time that when you rip it back you realize oh Literally everything is not what I thought it was. Right. And so, you know, we could very much be hyper real objects extruding through three dimensional space, for example. It and makes so me that's... think of, yeah, it makes me think of, um, remember in the third wish where Hellboy gets tied, tied up by the Bog Rouge with those chains that he can't break? Yeah. And then in the fairyland, it's a statue of Hellboy. Yeah. And they're all talking around it. And then Gruagak punches the statue and then Hellboy feels yeah. it. And so it's kind of like these two realities are going on at once, yeah. but it is like a veil. Like they're seeing the same thing, but they're not underwater with right. Hellboy and the Bog Rouge. And they're like, in the fairy land. The thing with Galdenar and Ted Howard's was always going to happen and is always happening and has always happened. So it's like, 
it already happened. It's going to happen. It's happening concurrent right. with like time isn't really time. So the, I, I have a hard time kind of expressing my thoughts because in my own mind, it makes sense like, oh, yeah, time isn't real. But then like when I try to tell that to other people, they're like, uh, actually, I don't think you have a firm grasp of reality. And I'm like, no, I do. <laughs> I do. I'm just like other people experience reality very differently from the way that you are experiencing reality and so like this this character's reality is that he is seems to be extruding into space-time in a very different fashion than let's say the character beside him and it's tied to this sword somehow right and so this is you know i i find that utterly endlessly fascinating ideas like that have always captured my attention. So I was always excited to get to this story just because I knew that it would play around with ideas about yeah. reality. But I think that I might have confused people by using that word. So I don't really know what word I could use in place of that because obviously that's not what the story is focusing on. It's it's more focusing on... Anyway, it's a, again, that's my O'Donnell rant right. going sure. off in the middle of the... But I very much enjoy that story. And I'm absolutely furious that's not an entire title. I know. And we had so much feedback about that. Comic Book Explorer said, Ted Howard's is one of the best editions of the Mignolaverse. BPRD Hell on Earth did a great job fleshing out the characters and creating new ones. At Nyabaro on Twitter said, really hope we get a Galdenar Ted Howard miniseries. Jason Abaddon said, Strackbine is dead on that yes, Chicago is around where Galdenar's tribe was. As to Hyperborea having been far in the north, it might have been geographically undersouthed way back in the Galdonar day due to plate tectonics moving landmasses around. Yeah, so he agreed with you, Matt, on, on that theory. I think I was uh, wondering about that. And then later I realized, no, I already know all this. Yeah. <laughs> and, I, and it's kind of cool because I was looking at it in the context of where we're at in the book club reading order. I see. Okay. Right, right. And I was right in the moment, and I was going, oh, I wonder if it's this or that. And then later I was like, come on, man, you already know all this. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do that all the time, too, even though I've read it. I try to put it in the context of where we are and ask those questions. And yeah. Mark Tweedo also said about your comment of it happening in the same location as present-day Chicago that you finished with, it's a bit of a stretch, probably not. Mark said, actually, it very well could have been. There's a lot more to talk about here, but you got to go through the other stories first. I'd love to see a Galdenar spinoff series or more. That said, I'd like to see that world through other characters' eyes. If you look, some of Gaul's warriors are women, uh, and I'd love to see them get more than background details. Yeah, so I didn't notice that. I have to go back and look at those warriors. Cole Merritt said, Does anyone have an idea what the ancient sword is made from? It kind of looks crystalline in some of the panels. And Jen Niklas says, it's real metal. Uh, so I guess uh, the same kind of metal that they used on the right on the on. suit, and the VES suit or yeah. something like that. Yeah. yeah. Jerry Turnbull said, I don't think Danielle's on the right track with her different reality idea. It's a direct connection and continuation of the history we have been slowly revealed across the different stories. And then you talked with Jerry a right. little bit about it. And, well, you, were, and, I, and I, you were trying to explain what you explained earlier. I actually earlier. agree with Jerry. Yeah. I'm just saying I don't... I understand what he's saying and I think that that is true i think my comments about reality might have been i don't want to say misunderstood because it's easy to misunderstand when i'm talking because I, <laughs> I am a, i the way, i talk about very confusing shit and i have very extremely specific ideas about what words mean which is not at all helpful when i'm trying to communicate my ideas 
on a literal fucking podcast to a bunch of people. So, and I agree that this is totally in line with the series and stuff. I'm not saying that it's outside of what the series has been presenting all along or anything like that at all. I'm just saying that it's interesting and cool to think about reality in a different way sometimes. And I think that that's what the story has in fact presented. And I think that that's what all of these stories present reality in a different fashion. Yeah, we've kind of seen that a couple yeah, different times. Yeah, absolutely. And so the, I think that I definitely think it does play around with ideas about reality in a way that makes you think about it in a way you might not have before, I think, is yeah. what I was really trying to get to. It kind of breaks so. your brain a little bit. Yeah, we talked which about I love, that. Which I love, which I'm obsessed with. Any story that can do that, I'm like, yeah, let me think about this for a million years. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Jerry Turnbull also said, First appearance of vampires in the Mignolaverse. There's even a subtle cross in the sky. I didn't even real. I didn't even make that connection when they're killing the cold people. They're staking them. Right. Oh, Are shit. those cold people like the first vampires? Or I thought that was interesting. Oh no, that makes total sense. And uh, or the last vampires. Oh. Whoa. After the vampire apocalypse. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry Turnbull also said the introduction of two of my favorite characters, Ted Howard's and Galdenar. When I posted about the medal from the Whittier Legacy, so the uh, Jerry Turnbull also pointed this out to me online, the medal from the Whittier Legacy bears a resemblance to the medal that they give Galdenar and his crew in the woods. Uh, yeah. And Todd Biala said, it's things like this that make the community amazing. Thank you. And Mark Tweedell said, I can't believe I didn't notice this before. Seems like a nice one for Skeleton Crew's BPRD Artifact Archive. Yeah, I would love to have that Whittier legacy. And Skeleton Crew actually liked that comment. So I'm like, oh, "Oh, maybe it's coming. At Imperious Rex Show said, this is one of my favorite sequences in the Whittier legacy. Where he's like, "Uh, does he have one of these? And he's like, I don't think so. He's like, that's going to be a problem. That was was great. (laughs) Did we even mention that? How did we not? We didn't mention that. And and I made that connection previously. But like, I didn't, we didn't talk about it on the show. I think we just had so much discussion but I did post a post about it this week for the, you know, for my weekly post yeah. after Jerry pointed it out. Yeah, I was Jerry like, oh, that's a good that one. Yeah. And I was like, how did we not yeah. even talk about that? That is, I can't believe that's that. That's a so, huge yeah, one. Thank yeah, thank you, Jerry. Some feedback on an unmarked grave. Jan Niklas said, as for unmarked grave, no, Bruno, why? I know you're a German man, but you didn't have to act on your evil heritage. Oh, you- no, come on. <laughs> <laughs> he's, always, he's always downing the Germans. Right. <sighs> Uh, you broke Katie's heart, you monster. Listen, I can't, can any of us here really blame him? Right. Though? Like, I'm not trying to say, like, you know, I'm just like, from his point of view, he's like, look, this is a bit much. And I think even Kate would probably be like, you know what? Probably is a bit much, I guess. Right. Maybe she was hoping for someone who was, who would be a little more down for dating during the apocalypse. But, you know, at, we're all under a lot of stress and, uh, these things happen. Right. Right. And he said, in all seriousness, though, the story made me feel really sad because it's the ending of a relationship and also a story about the beginning of the end. Yeah. You know that something will happen to Hellboy and to the people living there. Kate could have gone too, but she stayed. Just shows what a strong person she is, and it's sad that Bruno couldn't handle it as well as her. I really hoped that he would have been at her side until the end, but he seemed to think that she could have chosen the normal life with him. I mean, it's a minor detail, but when Bruno said, stay with me and bake a cake, I was like, oh, Bruno, no. Yeah, because yeah, he did say that in a different one. I think when they were on the video call, he was like, yeah. why don't you come over here and make pies for me or whatever. <laughs> it shows that he seemed to ignore an important part of her life and maybe sees her as someone she isn't, a stay-at-home person, and is just being egotistic or in love when he thinks that he can live their life as normal people. Even if he witnessed personally how everything went to hell, 
he is another dead person in a dying world. Poor stupid Bruno. Oh, it wouldn't have made much time if you had chosen the BPRD, but at least you would have stayed together. Well, I think there's two things happening here. One, it's like he sees that she deals with a lot of fucked up, right. out of the ordinary shit and is maybe trying to diffuse and calm things down by being like, hey, I'm going to say something ordinary and it's funny. Like, right. oh, you could bake pies. Like, I always saw that as kind of a tongue in cheek thing. Like, obviously he knows she's never going to stay right, home and bake right, fucking yeah. pies while there's monsters and apocalypse <laughs> and stuff going on. And like, I always saw that as kind of a tongue in cheek. Like, right. this is a silly comment to make to kind of diffuse the situation. But I also feel like it is so rare to find someone who's going to be down for right, this sort yeah. of a thing to have a relationship during monster apocalypse time. So it's one of those things that's like, look, these kind of relationships are really going to only come from the insular, weird inner circle thing we've got going on. And right. so it's really one of those things of like, that is just how alone you are. Unless you date within this inner circle, you're in the weird club right. and you're a weird fish man or you're a weird fire person or you have a you are made out of poop and got brought back to life like it's unless you're just a weird <laughs> fantasy monster you can't really relate right and unless you're trapped in a situation where you have to deal with these situations you know then you're you either are or you aren't and right. so he's on the outside and he's kind of thought maybe he could join in and be like yeah i can handle this kind of you're a ghost man that's fine like right but it turns out like it was a little much and no one can really blame him for that. But it's again, it is heartbreaking to see someone we love so much. Kate, like I think we would all fucking die for her right. at this point. Yeah, this so point. it's <laughs> protect her at all costs. We don't want her to get hurt, but we know she can handle it because I think she always knew the deal. I really do. I think she always knew that no matter what, like something like that couldn't have lasted just because unless you are in the fight every day, the way she is right, doing this all the time, there's no way you could sustain something like that. Well, maybe it was nothing to do with like monsters and apocalypse. Maybe it was just he just didn't want the long distance being in Germany and uh, Colorado. Oh, so you think he was? <laughs> no, no, actually, <laughs> I don't. But I he don't. was down for Agrajad battles, but not. <laughs> but, but but plane travels? Yeah, no. <laughs> plane rides are just. No, of course that's not. That's a step too far. Is is having to be on? What do you think it was? What do you think it was like Air Canada? Probably. And the way the uh, volcanic ash is in the air. Sure. Oh, right. Yeah. Like, so they like, couldn't even take flights, even, maybe. Yeah. yeah. No, no, of course. That's not what I believe. I just thought it'd be funny to say. <laughs> Lo- I don't know. You, you have a point. Volcanoes. You have a point. Airports are absolutely the worst. So, what's the deal with. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> and we had a comment from MS Collector on Instagram. He said, Fagredo equals goat. And he put like an emoji yeah. of a goat, but greatest of all time. And yeah, so yeah, I think yeah. that's a great comment to start our next discussion. So this week, we're not going to actually have a book club per se. We're just going to kind of talk about Duncan Fergredo a little bit. Surprise! Yeah, surprise. And I think it would be good to have some episodes like this every once in a while where we just kind of focus on one of the great artists. And I think with Fergredo, you know, he did an awesome trilogy with Darkness Calls, The Wild Hunt, and The Storm and the Fury. And then last week we read An Unmarked Grave, which kind of caps him for a little bit. Uh We know that he comes back later on, but that kind of ends that big run of his. And I thought it would be good to kind of take a minute, take a week, and just talk about him for a little bit and talk about his awesome work. Artist Spotlight. Duncan Fergredo. Yeah, so... It's the section of the show we call... The, it's a spotlight on Duncan Fergredo. There we go. Good job. <laughs> We're going to talk about Duncan Fergredo specifically. Back to you, John. 
So I'm looking here at the library edition for the Darkness Calls and Wild Hunt. And I wanted to read this one part by Scott Alley. He says, Part of why Duncan was such an inspired choice for this series is the similarity to Mike's style and the fact that he came up with his style naturally. I've known artists who draw with Mike's books open in front of them, deliberately copying his style, either because they're fans or because they think it would help them get work. But some artists, like Gabriel Ba and Eduardo Russo, arrived at their style the same way Mike arrived at his, a natural, organic evolution. So while Duncan bent his style toward Mike in the early parts of Darkness Calls, it didn't take him long to nail down his own version of Hellboy and get comfortable with the characters in his own style. So th- I thought that was a great piece of feedback from Ali, kind of talking about how... And, and so, you know, this made me kind of go back and look at... I have one of Duncan's old sketchbooks before he even did Hellboy. And okay. if you go back and you look at those sketchbooks, it's just called Stuff. And uh, it's really good. I, I'll post some pages of it this week. But you can see that that style was already there. You know what I mean? Before he came on to do the Hellboy books. Which is not to say that artists who have this, as it's been described, this organic developed style of their own it's not to say that they didn't start out being inspired by specific artists that they you know looked up to or that that, whose style they admired you know i i think that we all have to start somewhere and if you start you know by sketching similarly to someone you admire and then eventually evolve that into your own style I, i feel like that's i don't think necessarily that artists will start with the intention of copying unless you're that asshole from fucking ebay but i mean (laughs) i think that it's you know you you start with certain inspirations and you move from there and of course people like gabriel ba have right been drawing such a long time painting such a long time that they have their established style and all that stuff and obviously duncan Fergredo has his so i don't um i don't necessarily think if you're still in the beginning of phases of art please don't feel bad about you know being inspired by someone specific you'll get there that's i just wanted to throw that out there yeah, and oh, and, totally you, agree. yeah. And, and you mentioned his painting. There's a great part of the sketchbook in the back of the... Gorgeous. What is this? The Storm and the Fury Library Edition. And there's a bunch of paintings by Figredo in the back. Figredo says, Why line and wash? It's 2007. Wandering through the aisles at New York Comic Con, I chance upon a booth selling art materials, more specifically a set of water brushes and a bottle of ink. I never felt comfortable drawing fully rendered ink sketches at conventions, And it occurs to me that I can do something looser and yet more finished with these tools. Huh. I never thought line and wash before, and now I think it's smart to do it in front of an audience? In case you don't know, to a reclusive artist, sketching at cons is not unlike those dreams where you find yourself naked. (laughs) Regardless, I sketch, I paint, it works. Astonishingly, and thus a style is born. It's not new, just new to me. Somehow, it seems to work well for Hellboy 2, so well that I suggested to Mike that we might do a book in this line and wash style, and here I am in 2013 doing just that on Hellboy The Midnight Circus. It's the circle of life. I thought that was really interesting that he just kind of picked these up at a con and just started playing around with it and... You know, and then there's tons of pages. That's how it happens, though. If you've got the library edition, there's tons of pages of Incredible. awesome line and wash sketches. His, and I'll, I'll post some of these this week as well. His mastery over this line and wash style is absolutely stunning. It's incredible. Right. And it's something that, I, I mean, we've talked about this before, but I've ordered sketchbooks for you and we've ordered sketchbooks for Aubrey. And, you know, we ordered yeah. sketchbooks for, for each other from Duncan for Greta, like directly from him. And he is so fucking generous with his time and so sweet and so lovely. He drew us all 
um, our own separate little line and wash. Right. Yeah. Um, on the inside of the sketchbooks. Paintings inside. Yeah. The inside of the sketchbook. And they're, I mean, the fact that he would spend time giving us an original painting with this line and wash style is, I was so moved by that. And I, um, if you haven't got one of his sketchbooks, go order one. They're amazing. And uh, support artists that you like. Yeah, thanks for bringing yeah. that up. Plug the plug his store. He's got a great online store where he sells prints and sketchbooks and a bunch of stuff. And a lot of people I've seen online, they, they'll order these prints and the sketchbooks and they'll get a piece of original art also. So I'm not say saying it's guaranteed. That, but, no, 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 of course but not. But definitely, he, you know. He was very generous with yeah. that and I thought that was very, very nice. I was very appreciative of that. And to see that style, it seems so effortless. Obviously, it's taken decades of hard work and lots and lots and lots and lots of hard work i'm not trying to say you know when i say effortless i don't mean it took no effort i mean he's mastered this and it's incredible and he's always growing and taking it further and so to see to see those sketches in in his style like he did this with his own hand it's just it's cool to think about because it's just so beautiful and it's so detailed and it's so yeah yeah it makes me want to go practice (laughs) it makes me want to go do a bunch of paintings just so that i can Say I worked on it this week, jeez. And when we read the Midnight Circus, we were all like, "How is how is he doing this?" Like we were at the time, we didn't realize it was Line and Wash. I think one of our listeners came back and talked to us about Line and Wash. But I remember when I we were reading it, was... it, we were just like, "This is so beautiful! Oh my god, these pages are amazing!" Wait, I thought it was a uh, Duncan Fergredo himself. It was like the first time he commented and told us it was Line and Wash. Yeah. We also had a comment where someone was like, "Hey, it's in the back of the oh, well, it's been a long time, whatever, in the back of the library edition." I just talk about for a second about my favorite stuff from him in the Hellboy universe. First of all, I think, okay, I get that he's essentially the second Hellboy artist, right? He's the only other artist besides the original to handle this much, uh, this, this large of a series. And it gives you the opportunity to think about it. What if Hellboy had started out? with Duncan Fregredo on art. Wow. I, I would be just as hooked yeah. as I am now. So, okay, he had to be the second artist because this is somebody else's design. Somebody else was giving him direction the whole time. But just what if, right? So yeah. if I had picked up Hellboy for the first time and it was Duncan Fregredo on art right? and, you know, everything else about it was the same, I would have freaked out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You know, so I think that says something. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. There were times where I was like, wait a minute, who drew this? And you got to take a second because Fergredo is so good at just he has such a grasp of Hellboy, you know. Okay, so you get the big red demon in the room, right? This guy, he should all at once look like super powerful, but also vulnerable, right? Yeah. And the way he puts his facial expressions together, his body posture... He really captures the character and says a lot without any words. Yeah. Right? So my favorite, my absolute favorite pages by him, there's two. Well, three. The, um, <laughs> and for the reasons that I was just talking about. So uh, the storm issue two. Okay. Uh, when Alice and Hellboy are in the pub and Hellboy's having tea, he sees Kate on TV giving oh, yeah. a press conference. That to me is... Just the look on his face, right. seeing Kate, and he starts thinking back to when he left the Bureau and said he was going to Africa and his discussion with her. And then the very next thing he thinks about is being a little kid with the professor. Right. 
Yeah. And talking about, you know, am I a monster? And he goes, no, you're something more. And he goes, oh, you mean like the lobster? You know, <laughs> so so I love all that. But it, it starts with that page where he sees Kate on TV. And to me, that always really stood out as very, very well done. The other page I like by him, yeah. and I guess it's more like a sequence. It's at the end of The Wild Hunt, I think, right? When, when he's all full of arrows and he's got a knife in his back. And he comes out and he sees Henry Hood still waiting for him. Oh, yeah. No, it is Darkness Calls. I love that. Yeah. And he's like, you could tell he is just over it. Uh, <laughs> and and he's like, all right, well, let's do it. You know, I think Hood is saying something like, finish it. Right. Yeah. And and then he just crumbles. And Hellboy goes, well, that was easy. But <laughs> but again, it's like his mannerisms like. That would have just been like a throwaway, funny punchline of, yeah. of sorts. But the way it's drawn is so uh, so fitting. And then, of course, you guys know, and, and anyone who's heard me talk about Hellboy knows, I can't get enough of Roger, and I keep making all these connections and, and <laughs> stuff. So people should check out The Fury, uh, the first issue. When this came out, you know, so much had already transpired that I, I reread this first issue over and over and over because it was just, I mean, Hellboy had taken this truly epic turn and the Fury issue one was a big deal. And I kept looking at, uh, so Fregredo draws Hellboy with like a hood on. Yeah, I love that part. You know, he's got the one eye. Yeah, they think it's and the witches. Yeah, and then they see his hand, and they think maybe it's Thor, yeah. right? Like, that's a hammer. But the more I read that, the more I was like, what does this remind me of? And so, this is where I make the, the weird connection. <laughs> I think he may have had a direction to mimic the opening pages from Almost Colossus. Oh, uh, okay. Remember, Roger has that Brother. crucifix? Up on top of the mountain, and yeah. he sees his brother, yeah. right? He's wearing a hood, too. And with the lightning in the background and the way kind of Hellboy's looking from out of the hood, yeah, it made me it, it made me think of that. And I, I put those two pages together, and, right. and I do think maybe they told him to do that. But anyway, just seeing Hellboy with that hood on, he's missing an eye, and you know he's getting ready to go into something that's just going to be you know for hellboy to right. say that this is going to be one of the biggest things he's ever done like you're well think... into season five at this point <laughs> right yeah right right but i think there's uh Fregredo gives him a sense of melancholy yeah and and that's how roger felt in that moment oh yeah and I, you know when he was well that moment in almost colossus but i think that again Fregredo just using those three different pages or scenes as examples Fregredo is able to draw Hellboy in a way that makes him look, yeah. you know, like the toughest guy you've ever seen, but at the same time, fragile and vulnerable yes. at his core. And all humans are vulnerable at their right, core. Yeah. And Hellboy's, you know, always wanted to be more human. What so beautiful insight. I think Fregredo brings that in a way that nobody else really has. And I know that that's a big statement to make. I was also struck by just how much of a storyteller Duncan Figueredo is. I know that I keep coming back to this over and over. I'm like a broken record. But if you can, not that dialogue is not important, not that writing is not important. Of course it is. But if you can take all the dialogue out and still follow the story, it's amazing. And and that's something that he does uh, masterfully, really, really well. And so that's that's another thing that I was, as I was going back over these stories, yeah. I, was, I was struck by that. I'm looking at Darkness Calls. One of my favorite scenes with Figueredo 
is where he encounters a little Domovoy guy in the mm-hmm. stove. Yeah. And he's like crying or whatever. And so Hellboy has to kind of like coax this guy yeah. out. And he's like, all right, why don't you come out so we can light a fire? And the way that he talks to this guy, like you said, if the word bubbles weren't in there, you get the idea yeah. that, you know, Hellboy is, he has a gentle touch with these characters. And just like um, Matt was saying, he's this red demon. He's yeah. got this big hand. But Figredo does give him that like, um, that, that vulnerable. He, yeah, that he's got a heart. Yeah. You know what yeah. I mean? And. And I think if you just look at those pages, they're very sweet. My other absolute favorite thing. Oh, but wait, is... I was gonna on the back of that. Oh, I was go ahead. Say, um, he's not the shoot first, ask questions later. He's the he's gonna ask the right. questions, and I think that that's something that I'm always so interested. Like I, you see movies about aliens where it's like shoot all the aliens. They're gonna shoot us too. It's a shoot 'em up, and it's like yeah, but how boring is that compared to the alternative, which is what if we could somehow try and communicate with the aliens? I want to see this taking course over the span of years and like oh well we've made progress with the communicating with the aliens and like that's that's the interesting that's what i want to see which is why like when i came out with that arrival movie i was like oh maybe they'll talk to the aliens like i saw that trailer and i was like oh maybe they'll actually slow it down and we'll get a really boring talking to the aliens movie finally so that's something that i always really appreciated about this we actually get to hear from these weird characters they're not just immediately blown up or something it's so anyway, so sorry, please go on with what you're... I just want to correct myself. The Henry Hood scene, that's at the end of Darkness Calls. Yeah, yeah, I thought that's what you said. Yeah. Oh, okay, I thought I said Wild Hunt. Yeah, I think... Okay, here's a bold statement. Uh-oh. Uh, I we, think don't, we don't the... get many of those around here. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm always cautious about saying stuff like sure, this. Sure, sure. But, but here we go. I think uh, Minola is drawing Hellboy... Like he draws Hellboy, and I think Duncan Fregredo is drawing Hellboy how Hellboy should be drawn. Ah, wow! And that, mm. that and is that, a bold statement, Matt. Oh shit! Well, <laughs> that is that is very well a benefit from being the second artist. Sure. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like you get a little bit of a leg up. Yeah. yeah. I'm gonna abstain from this conversation, <laughs> probably. <laughs> and like you know, I love the way things are right now. Right, like. Uh, whether it's Mike or Duncan, fine. I'll take either. But I think that... Uh, I finally yeah. met someone who can make me back down from having an opinion. <laughs> Congratulations. Well, and and I don't mean it to be no, controversial. No, of course. I'm being, so, I'm being silly. Don't. It's well, weird. because I, I always come from it from the reader perspective. And I think that you could see that Fergredo is really... I mean, one, he's got to step up to the to the challenge here, right? Yeah. Uh, and two, he has to be invested. And I know, like, you know, from reading sketchbooks in the back of these volumes, and I know from being an artist that there's always this self-loathing and self-doubt about your own work. Oh, yeah. And I know that he has felt the same way, but I would guess that more often than not, he knew what he was doing. Right. Yeah. And not not that he had to be confident, but that he knew that he was putting down the right lines. I'm the one who's all the children are beautiful. It's like the stars in the sky or the grain of sand (laughs) on the beach. I can't choose one of them. They're all I love them all. Right. Anyway, let's I can't wait to hear the listener. Oh, yeah. (laughs) You're good for engagement. What can I say? I want to say, though, two of my favorite panels from Fergato are 
from the Midnight Circus where little Hellboy is starting to climb over that rock fence. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, like, the transition. In the, uh, the whole beginning is like, it's just, you know, like ink. Sure. And then you get the line and wash. It's kind of like moving into... Um, yeah, we had talked about Alice that in Wonderland type. Right. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. But then also the final panel. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know which one you're talking about. Where... Um, Even the retro the, panels where he was a little kid were yeah. kind of done in the retro comic style. Right. It's very like the where he's uh, yeah. where Broom is holding him as he's falling asleep in his arms and he's like taking him back home and then in the background is Astaroth holding the snake and you got the ring yeah. on. Yeah. And that's all done in the the line and wash style and it, I like how he used it to differentiate realities. Right. That's a beautiful page. He's got too. his hand out like I want you to be in the legions of hell. <laughs> We essentially get like four different styles yeah. in uh, the Midnight Circus. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's pretty cool because that, yeah, the, that's crazy. The Pinocchio stories, yes, uh, yeah, that part's drawn different. There's like a those two guys in the hobo camp at the end is like pencils and right. kind of scribbly. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, he's diverse. Yeah, I, I was going to talk about, and I'll talk about this again later, but the Grugak flashback scene. Oh, yeah. That's one of my favorite oh, yeah. all-time Fagredo pages. It's kind of two pages, really, but it's just in the middle of the story, there's all this like kind of heavy shit going down. There's a lot of dark palettes, and then when you get to those pages, it's very kind of almost pastel, and it's just very bright. It makes it feel like more like a fairy tale, and all that is just done very beautifully. It's some of my favorite stuff that he's done. I also like the way he draws lightning throughout the series. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. He draws a lot of lightning work. But especially that one where it's like Perrin. Yeah, where Perrin's coming down. Yeah, and you get the staff of the lightning, and then the next page is the old man sitting by the tree, and he's drawing the lightning yeah. bolts in the, in the riverbank. Yeah, Those pages go well good. together. Yeah. All right, I'm super excited. Get to the questions. Yes. Yeah, so another reason that I want to do this episode is because, you know, I bothered Fagredo enough on Twitter where he was like, hey, I'll answer some questions if you guys want for the podcast. And I was like, really? And then so we got our, all our questions together and Fagredo actually took the time to answer our questions. And so what I thought guy. that was really nice. Yeah. We sent him a couple questions. And so we'll just kind of go around and talk about some of the questions. I think these first couple questions are Aubrey. Do you want to go ahead and read those, Aubrey? All right, I want to preface my questions by saying that I'm a total dork and I am not a journalist. I do not know how to interview or ask questions. No, no, no. We're just <laughs> I'm just all like asking total straight up fanboy questions. We're a group that's of good. Friends, I think that's and good. We're reading comics and talking about the comics, so it's totally fine. All right, here we go. So I asked him, what is your favorite medium to create art, not art for comics with a deadline, just what you like to do for fun? And then he replied, Right now, it's probably the iPad Pro, and if I had to nail it down further, it'd be the HB Pencil Brush in the Procreate app. Nice. I used to sketch and doodle in physical sketchbooks, totally random faces and figures. The iPad has become the modern equivalent. Better than that, I've designed many covers on it, even blocking in the values and colors that get ported over to the final art. There's a nice feature that allows you to save video in the process, which you can then share on Twitter or YouTube. Which I watch. I watch those. Yeah, they're, they're really cool. They're super cool. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was a great answer. And I, I like that this brush is called the HB pencil brush. Yeah. And it's like Hellboy. Or that's the first right. thing I thought of. <laughs> well, you can, that program makes it so easy to customize your brushes every which way. So I think that's really cool. Yeah, and that stuff sketchbook that I have, I'll have to post some pictures of that. But it is just a lot of random faces and stuff like that. Yeah. So it's really cool to kind of see the behind the scenes of his style. For the second question I had asked him, I talked about the Grugak flashback scenes. One of the pages that I really love is where he's in this hulking monster form. 
And I asked for Grado if there was anything else that he could tell us about that. It only appears in one panel, but it's very memorable. And he said, without the script to hand, it's hard to be precise. I'm sure Mike suggested several animals that might be combined. I'm not sure if the scaly forearms were him or me, but I suspect Mike suggested I add the tusks. I think the brief was along the lines of majestic, but potentially terrifying. Possibly it was a long time ago. And I really like that majestic, but terrifying. I think that yeah. fits that, that character perfectly. And I was actually listening to a podcast that Fagredo was on. He was on this great podcast called Orbiting Comics. It's with him. It's an interview with him and Lawrence Campbell. And Aubrey and Danielle probably should not listen to it because they talk about a lot of spoilery stuff. But there is some good bits in there. And Fagredo mentions that in the Darkness Calls era, Mignola was pretty much providing a pen, providing a little thumbnail for every page. Yeah. yeah. So I think early on it was more... Um, kind of like choreographed or scripted and then later on you know duncan got to stretch his legs a little bit you know i think this third question is that yours aubrey it is okay go ahead i asked i've seen in interviews where you've talked about hellboy being your favorite comic now that you've worked on some of the best in my opinion hellboy comics is there anybody else in the mignola verse you would like to draw and he replied there was always a edward gray hellboy story underway but that fell apart don't ask I enjoy drawing Roger and Abe for a few panels, but honestly, it's probably enough. I'm not sure if there's much I can add after all I've done. Yeah, I would. And it's like, don't ask about the Edward Gray help. How do you <laughs> right. not yeah. ask about that? Oh, my God. I would love to see Fagredo well, draw it, Edward it, Gray. It might be a situation where it was in the works and it fell through for some I know, reason. But yeah. You don't want to get into that is the, such a tease. the impropriety of the situation. And it's just better to let sleeping dogs lie. Right, right. Sure, sure. What are you going to say, Matt? Edward Gray Hellboy story sounds like. My favorite story I've never read. <laughs> Come on, we have to. Okay, I, I, I even want to know like what the drama is. Why, why not? Don't ask. Well, I think I think it's just a professional thing, probably. Like I don't care. Don't, I do not care. You don't want to. You don't want to. You know, too much behind the curtain. Everyone's got to be maintain this simple. Uh, well, but everybody would want that comic. Yeah. <laughs> and and so it might have been a time thing. It might have been an organizational thing. Maybe they just couldn't work out the story. They couldn't beats. get it out, or maybe it was yeah. just a you know that it didn't. Everyone's schedules didn't line up, or something. You know? Right. Never, maybe it was just too big. Yeah. Right. Like it was Edward too Gray awesome. and Hellboy. Like yeah. I mean, because they want to break our brains. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> something I, too I, awesome. Yeah, I don't want to spoil stuff. It's not oh. like you don't see them, but uh, a whole, a whole, wow, anyway. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to go crazy thinking about that now. Aubrey, you, you want to read this one where you talked about the sketch? Okay, yeah, so this one is definitely not a question. This I couldn't think of another question, so I was just like looking at that line and watch sketchbook that he gave me, and so I, I just said to him, this isn't a question, I just wanted to say thank you for the amazing Aww. sketch you did for me in your line and watch volume one sketchbook. I had not read The Wild Hunt when I received it, but now I know that Hellboy's holding Excalibur, and I can't thank you enough for it. Aww. And he replied, Aubrey, you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> and another thing that I kind of freaked out about when I saw that sketch that he did for you was those... Um, those rocks with the runes on them. Yeah, those yeah. are super cool. Hellboy's walking amongst those rocks that have all those runes on them, and we see those. But the way he handles negative space yeah. with this line and wash style is just mind blowing. 
Did you ever post that picture to the uh, book club? Yeah, I did. I did. And I also posted... The one um, that Jerry colored. The one me. that Jerry Turnbull colored. But I'll, I'll post it again. Yeah. Matt, you have this one, number five. You want to read that one? While working on Hellboy comics, was there ever a time when you took into account Dave Stewart's colors? Mm. Whether at some point during your process or maybe after seeing his colors over your art for the first time? And how did that affect your work? If at all. That is a brilliantly nerdy that's question. A great que- that's I a great question. I love that yeah. question. What was his response? Because every time I did a Hellboy thing, I always was like, I wonder if, what this would look like if Dave Stewart colored it. Yeah. Right. Like, instead of me. <laughs> so you're kind would have of been so much better. Saying, <laughs> saying that, like, taking that into account would become, like, a unified style. Right. That's yeah. interesting. What did he say? So he said, I always tried to be conscious of the color. But I had the unfortunate tendency of over-detailing panels that can fragment the art if everything is treated individually. It's time-consuming, too. One of the things I learned was that Dave would constantly surprise you, go in an unexpected direction. Mm. It's possible that much of that was directed by Mike. I know that as he scripts with his thumbnails, he's already thinking of color schemes, how each scene would sit next to the others on a page like a chessboard. Wow. And then he he closes by saying, uh, there was a lot more variance in color approach on the Midnight Circus. These saturated colors simply did not work on my painted pages, so they were greatly desaturated. Interesting. And the Midnight Circus was after the big trilogy, right? I believe so. Yeah, Yeah. so he had already done Darkness, even though we read it first, he had already done Darkness called The Wild Hunt and The Storm and the Fury by the time the Midnight Circus came out. So it's a a group dynamic. It's a team effort. I like how he said how each scene would sit next to the others on a page like a chessboard. Right. Um, Reminds me, I forget what the comic was, but Mark Tweedale did a review of I'm not sure if it was Hellboy or BPRD. Hopefully he can chime in and remind us. But he took the whole comic and laid out all the pages in a line. Oh, wow. Just so you could see how the color worked. That is so awesome. Wow. Now I want to yeah. see that. <laughs> yeah, it was really cool. Maybe I could try and track it down myself. But yeah, that is like a chessboard. So yeah. talk about talk about three-dimensional chess. Right. <laughs> awesome. I think you have the next two, so you can just run with that. So I ask him, the intro to Hellboy Library Edition Volume 5 talks about Scott Alley and Magnola asking you to help speed up the process by using less detail, and you told them they wouldn't like it as much if you did. As a comic book artist, do you ever make sacrifices to your personal style to stay on deadline, or do you do whatever it takes to maintain your style while staying on track? You have great um, questions, Matt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah these are really are good questions. Super good. I'm so glad you well, were in on this. <laughs> yeah, just it's almost like asking him, like, "Hey, I don't eat and sleep when I'm working on a comic. How about you?" Right. <laughs> but then, since they brought it up in that yeah. introduction, I figured it was relevant. And he said, "The problem with them asking me to use less detail ran deeper than that. I was already trying to blend a flavor of." Mike's work with my own to maintain the feel of Hellboy. Had I started to strip away detail, I feared I'd end up with a pale imitation of Manola. It was hard enough maintaining the balance as it was. Wow. Regarding Deadline, I should say I stripped back detail, cropped closer, made compromises. Uh, You would never know that. Yeah. Uh, And he says I mostly worked more, slept 
less and despaired more. Yeah. <laughs> I can I can relate yeah. to that. Maybe not on the same scale, obviously, because, you know, <laughs> he's a super professional presence in the world of comics, and I just do my little things here and there. But, yeah, I totally I can see how the farther you go in your career, I, I think that probably the more pronounced that just becomes. I think that probably never stops. Honestly, it just probably becomes a bigger and bigger part of your life. That's intense. Yeah, and he says... Unfortunately, my lasting memory of all the books is Scott moaning at me about the schedule. Oh, no. <laughs> so keep it keep in mind, they had another artist slated to do Darkness Calls. Correct. Yeah, we yeah, talked yeah. about that. Yeah, and he had done a number of pages, and then had to. Then he just wasn't on the project. I forget why. And so they were already behind schedule, but uh, wow, I didn't even think about that. Right. So you come you on know, to this book that you really want to do that you're excited about, but you got to hurry up too. Yeah, and that is the editor's role, or one of them, right. is to keep you on schedule. And I, I have personal experience working with Scott in, in those regards. Right. Um, <laughs> what was we, your we What were, was your experience with this? We were never on a deadline. Right. But I was, you know obviously very enthusiastic of so of course yeah i would give him scripts very quickly <laughs> <laughs> and and he would turn them back to me equally as fast wow it was as if he was trying to match my enthusiasm right? well like wow. you said that's his job to kind of keep everyone going and keep them on track right so that's yeah you would hope and that it, his response would be pretty pretty timely yeah, but it was like I'd give him a script at midnight, and he would get back to me by 7 a.m. Jeez, wow. And I then, got not sleeping, jeez. Yeah, and like the, the script process, and these were like two-page stories. We would revise the script, I don't know, four to six times. Wow, okay, wow. Got to make sure that you, uh, you yeah, and doing the best with what you got. Well, and he would edit them as if they really mattered, like typos. Uh, like in the description panel, he would mark where a comma should be. Well, yeah. Oh, wow, I mean, just gotta... in the descriptors. Yeah. That's crazy. Right. I mean, yeah. that's that's an hey, editor. Hey. Yeah, you got to do it. There's right. a reason why Mignola chose him to work with for all those years. Well, especially yeah. nowadays, yep. you're going to get 800,000 people just absolutely hollering about your with an asterisk next to it. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, it's just... Oh, yeah, yeah. It's unbelievable, well, and... the amount of fucking... Just, they have time. They have the time. The coolest part was once I started doing like roughs or pencils or inks, no changes, no edits. He just approved them, said they look great, keep going. Nice. Wow. So, nice. Yeah, so that as an artist, I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. I, <laughs> I recently got an email that was like, yeah, we have we have no edits on this. We have no notes. We're, yeah, you forwarded to me. You were like, oh, with, wow. the crying, the first draft, was, yeah. with the crying emoji. <laughs> so good. Being approved on the first draft is like no other feeling. And they the response was like the next day kind of a thing, too. And they're like, I don't, there's no other feeling like that. Yeah. There really yeah. isn't. A breath of fresh air. Yeah. Uh, okay, next question. Without revealing any spoilers after the short story, An Unmarked Grave, can you tell us if Manola and company gave you insight to events that had yet to occur while working on the Hellboy comics you illustrated? So I'm asking, did they give him spoilers? Right, yeah. Um, I was often spoiled. Oh, uh, wow. But I, I was happy to be. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so... He said, I don't remember anything specifically after 
though I'm sure Mike did tell me stuff. But the night I was offered Hellboy way back at the beginning, Mike pretty much laid out the entire story, the broad strokes at least, Excalibur, everything. It was way too much to take in, I could tell you that. Wow. How Damn. cool is that? So he just starts telling him everything that's going to happen. Oh, wow. <laughs> Can you imagine like a phone call where they start talking about Excalibur and just right. everything? Oh, my God. Yeah. It's so intense. Right. I mean that's like a something that just like you know you just you I just didn't see it coming the Excalibur angle right yeah and it's yeah, also yeah. It, it gives you some insight in that they do have this stuff planned out there is a lot of thought into it it isn't just like what are we gonna do next it's like no they they know where they're going mm-hmm. I had the next question I asked for Grado I said I really enjoy when you get to illustrate the BPRD characters specifically Kate Corrigan and her facial expressions in the Darkness Calls epilogue and an unmarked grave. What is your process for creating your character designs for these pre-established characters? And Figredo said, thank you. I knew that Mike had based Kate on his wife, Christine. So I just tried to get a little of her in there. I definitely see that 100%. Yeah, he says, I'm not sure how well that went. And it was probably a mistake as she didn't bear much of a resemblance to the previous versions of her. I did like that one shot on the grayscale painting of the group shot I did for Guy Davis. And that's the one that it's in the back of the volume five omnibus, I believe. Where he's giving bunny ears. Yes, I love that picture so much. The expressions are always based on me acting out stuff in a mirror. Yeah. So that was awesome because I love her (laughs) facial expressions in an unmarked grave. That's a common thing, though, is you keep a mirror next to your, if you're drawing a lot of faces, right? You keep a mirror. Yeah, it really lends insight on how he's able to get all those different emotions. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I really enjoyed that. Well, I'll catch myself making the face that I'm drawing. And then I'll realize, like, I'm making this super weird face. <laughs> and I just like thinking of Figredo doing all these sad faces of Kate. In yeah. the, like, where she's almost crying and stuff like that. The next question I asked was, An unmarked grave marked an ending for you and that it wrapped up the Hellboy trilogy and your run on the book, at least until Beast of Vargu. How did you feel working on this small, non-action story after completing such an epic run full of battles? Any other thoughts on an unmarked grave? And he said, I actually prefer the non-action stuff. That's what I drew for years at Vertigo. I got good at keeping conversations interesting, making the characters emote. That bench, every angle. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. I wish I'd spent more time on an unmarked grave, though. It definitely suffered for being rushed. So, I yeah, tell. I, I thought it was a beautiful story, but it also reminds me in the interview or in that awesome interview with him and Lawrence Campbell on that Orbiting Comics podcast, you should definitely check out if you're caught up. He talks about in The Wild Hunt, he talks about drawing Hellboy and Alice and how that was some of his favorite stuff to draw was just them talking and interacting with each other. It's actually kind of funny because Duncan says that Mignola told him you're going to get to draw Hellboy's sex life. <laughs> and he was really worried. And, and Fagreta says he was really worried about that, but then happy that it ended up getting reduced to just a kiss and a hug. Right. Yeah. Oh, man. So I, I thought that was really Jeez. interesting, too, because, you know, we do see, like, it made me think of, um, if we want to go there, at the end of Macoma, we do see him, you know, uh, a woman yeah, gets sure. in the bed with him and all this kind of stuff. So I wonder if like more there was going to be more like that, or if it was always just going to be like yeah, it's going to yeah. It it ended up being pretty tasteful, but I wonder if that was just Mignola ribbing him by telling him that or whatever. Probably. Yeah. Yeah. But I think also going back to the initial comments, I think every artist is going to be their own worst critic 
unless they're an absolutely shitty artist. Yeah. Isn't that weird how, like, it's the inverse that is true. <laughs> All the yeah. artists are like, I'm the greatest fucking artist. Like, at that point, you dis- you have decided to stop growing, stop learning. And right. then after that, what is the fucking point? But I, I feel like, you know, an artist that is their own worst critic, they they spend so much time being like, I'm absolute crap. I'm the worst. But really, that's, what that means is they are always trying to learn and grow. Yeah. They're always trying to perfect their craft, even if they're the top of their game and the top of their class. And that's how, that's yeah. why they are who they are. What's the line from that Sleater Kenny song? If your heart is done, Johnny, get your gun. And Johnny, get your gun is a, a short story that if you want to Google it, you can Google it and find it really easily. But that's a whole thing of like, if everything is taken away from you, what are you going to choose to do with right. your reality? And so I think that's just another insight into why we love the artists that we love, because they're going to be yeah. humble and torturing themselves about every little thing. And when on when we're looking at their art, we're like, this is amazing. What exactly. are you talking about? Exactly. That's just a little... And, and I think that if you go back and you look at the sketches in the back of the sketchbook and stuff like that, he does draw a lot of... He does have a lot of little notes that are very... He's putting himself down. Really a you lot. You know what yeah. I mean? And uh, it's just it's just really it's just really interesting to hear that side of it. And you I think... You see that some, so often so many artists can't help themselves. So they're yeah. just like, yeah, here's a crap sketch. And everyone's like, this is good. Right, exactly. And I think even when... I think he, a little bit of that can be healthy. And I think... It can also tip to the other side where you're doing a little too much. Sure. I mean, you know, we all kind of wrestle with that. Like I was saying earlier, if you're absolutely certain that you're the best and you've got no more learning to do, then okay, go away. Yeah, and and I what I was going to say was even when he first started commenting on the podcast, he was like, "Oh, this makes me feel better about the work that I did." And I'm I'm thinking like, <laughs> "What? This is yeah. a this is a masterpiece. These these right. three this trilogy is amazing. It's some of the most." You know, when people talk about their favorite Hellboy stories, they mention the Wild Hunt and Darkness Calls and the Storm and the Fury all the time. So that kind of humility can be a yeah. really thin, thin line to walk. Unmarked grave was rushed. That's crazy. <laughs> I, I can't. I know. I can't get past that because it is so perfect. I know. Yeah. Maybe that just goes to show artists should just let go more I know, often. Right. I know. Well, you're always <laughs> yeah. looking at something you're like, oh, this could be so much better if I weren't absolutely crap. And everyone else is like, no, this is good. We right. Yeah. What are you talking about? And now I'm thinking we have to find a way to get Fregredo to do a Kate Corrigan miniseries. Yes. Oh, man. I would love that. Yes. Oh, my God. We've been talking about a Kate Corrigan uh, miniseries already and then talking about how Fregredo draws her so well. Yeah. Kate, Kate and. Uh, Kate, Kate and uh, Kate and Bruno. No, Kate. Oh, not Kate. Anymore. No, no, no. Uh, Kate and Bruno and Lobster Johnson in the backseat. No, no, we no. need to see that story. I was gonna say. <laughs> I was gonna say Kate and Edward Gray. And yeah, we can throw in uh, what's oh. his name, Lobster, Lobster Johnson. Johnson. Let's throw him in there. <laughs> I also asked him, "What can you tell us about Goya Saturn devouring his children?" It's a cover. time travel story. Do you get it? Oh yes. Oh come on! <laughs> All right. My jokes aren't funny. Start over. <laughs> I also asked him, can you tell us about the Goya Saturn devouring his children cover for the BPRD The Long Death? And we talked about that on one of our previous episodes. And Fagredo said, I feel fairly sure that this was suggested as, as a starting point. Or I drew it unconsciously and the likeness was pointed out. Oh. Researching flayed bodies was as fun as you can imagine. <laughs> I stopped and referred to anatomy figures instead. That one was pretty fully formed in the first sketch, which is more than can be said about the final cover in the series, 
that was a nightmare. Right. And so that's the one yeah. where Daryl the Wendigo and the Were Jaguar are fighting on the cover. Right. So I guess that one was a little bit more challenging. I'm sure. And it doesn't surprise me that that would be something that, you know, he drew it and then people pointed out later, like, oh, this is reminds me of this Goya, you know, so that's, yeah. that's not surprising at all. It happens all the time. And I wonder if maybe that's a question for like Scott Alley or Mignola, because Goya has come up so many times right. now, you yeah. know, in the stories. So I'd love to just know more about that connection. Maybe just that, that type of thinking has seeped its way so far sure. into the bones <laughs> of this story that it's hard to avoid and then lastly i said we are so delighted to see you draw hellboy again in beast of vargu are there any more upcoming projects or anything else that you'd like to promote and Figredo said it was great to come back for one issue i got the chance to draw a hellboy book the way i'd been drawing sketches in brush pen i'm pretty happy with it so i'm excited to see this yeah. now, knowing that it's going to have this style Absolutely. he says right now i'm just finishing up a few covers and then taking a break Play with oil paints and see what happens. Well earned. Yeah, nice. so that's one thing that we haven't kind of talked about is he does a lot of cover work for a lot of different books. If you're reading Rumble, he's had some great covers on that book. Also, Fight Club 3 has some amazing Fagredo covers. I was talking to Aubrey about these the other day. Yeah, I can't wait to acquire this. Yeah, they <laughs> look really great. And, um, you know, also, I also want to promote his his store. You know what I mean? Again, oh, yeah. you know, to be sure to, to go on there and buy some of his stuff but you know again going to that podcast where they're interviewing him and lawrence campbell at one point the interviewer asks what other characters do you want to draw and figredo's like i got to draw hellboy i don't give a shit about any of these other characters and everybody (laughs) just starts laughing even lawrence campbell was blown away by that by that comment but he's like why would i want to draw x-men why would i want to do all this stuff he's like that's too much work i don't want to do that so that was really interesting that he's just like, you know, I've gotten to do Hellboy. Yeah. I'm going to do some covers, but I don't want to do all that other, those team books and you, all that yeah, kind no, of stuff. No, that's the thing is that once you, <laughs> you got to do Hellboy, you're in the very small club. Yeah. Of yeah. people who got to do major Hellboy shit. And yeah. so that's something that's like, yeah, after that, everything else just seems kind of like, all right. Yeah. Sure, whatever. I even like watched a YouTube interview with him and he was like talking to... It's like some fan talking to him, I guess. And he was talking about getting the job for the Darkness Call. And he talked about the other artists leaving and how, like, he was already assigned, he was already doing another project, but he had to leave that project just so he could go do Hellboy. Yeah. And he knew that, you know, taking this job would be like risk burning that other bridge. But the other guy wasn't happy, but eventually. I guess they're cool, but um, right. But you I know, have he, to, I would probably do the same. Thing. But he was just like you know, yeah. it was his dream to work on yes. Hellboy. You're not going to pass that up. That's... Yeah, yeah, and I, and I think even in one of the forwards, Mignola talks about how they had to drag Duncan away from another project. Right. And when I looked a little bit more into it, because I did look into that, trying to figure out what it was, I think it was a DC project. Jeez. So I don't know, you know, but it might have been a big character or something like that. You know what I mean? And to to just go, well, I'm gonna. I'm going to go do Hellboy instead, I think is Hell pretty yeah. awesome. I mean, yeah, yeah, you know, that's really cool. That says a no lot about him. There's no contest there. I don't care who the character was. That There's absolutely no... Well, he did mention um, who it was. That he, I just can't remember right off the oh, top right. of my head. Oh, uh, okay. No, not the character, the uh, person he was working with. I found a quote from Mike Manola uh, about the Beast of Vargu, specifically regarding Duncan. Nice. And uh, it was in an interview that came out, I think it was March or April of this year. But he says, and and this is something I think we have been trying to articulate recently. I may have said this. I think Fregredo does BPRD like live action 
BPRD. Right. Mm, right. Like the way he draws it, but but listen to how Mike says it. Uh, Duncan brings not just an amazing amount of research and detail to everything he does, but also breathes real life into his characters. Even now, I can't imagine anyone who could have done what he did with our giant Hellboy super epic, Darkness Calls, The Wild Hunt, and The Storm and the Fury. And frankly, I figured that after that, he'd have gotten Hellboy out of his system for good. <laughs> I've never been so glad to be wrong. The Beast of Argu is an odd one, and there are some bits in there. And then he pauses and says, well, it's not a story I would have written for anyone else. Wow. wow. That is so the awesome. The highest possible praise. Yeah. It's so get to... excited. Yeah, I'm super excited for that. I'm looking at the introduction on the Volume 5 Library Edition. So here, uh, Scott Alley writes, Duncan was busy on a project at D.C., it wasn't a minor project, and it wasn't easy for Duncan to walk away from it, but in the end, he decided to quit the other book, and I can't imagine what the hell we would have done if he hadn't. Yeah, and I think that that sums it up well. Yeah. I don't know what any of us would have done if, if he hadn't, <laughs> yeah. because these stories are well-regarded by many Mignola fans as the best. And so if we had to go Midnight Circus, Darkness Calls, The Wild Hunt, and The Storm and the Fury, we'll count those as one. If you had to pick your favorite, what would you, what would you pick? All of them. No, yeah, you can't. can't. <laughs> yes, I can. Oh. Yes, I can. <laughs> yeah. What about you, Matt? You want to give a non-vague answer? Uh, Aubrey and I have Fury. formed the resistance. You, you would say the Fury. Yeah, it gotta be because that was. Oh, I don't know. The Wild Hunt is so good. Um, <laughs> I, I gotta say the Fury because look, if he hadn't come on board, we probably would have had more than one artist doing these. Right. Ooh. Yeah. Or or it would have been Mike, and they would have taken. Longer, probably, right? What a, that's, um, a, that's such a good testament to just the powerhouse of an artist that this guy really is. Yeah. I think I think the Fury, because that's a big, big deal. There, I mean, Mike dedicated Volume 5 to him, I think. Yeah, I was going to yeah. read that, too. Um, the dedication is to Duncan Figueredo and Dave Stewart. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah, Appropriate. Right. But, like, talk about heavy lifting. Oh, yeah. Um, to have Hellboy die? Yeah. I mean, come on. Not just anybody's going to do that, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. Well, I guess if you would have to press me on this one, <laughs> um, I would say, like, you know, the Midnight Circus is something, like, I really enjoyed seeing the very first time we got to it because I felt like it was something different that we hadn't yeah. really seen by that point when we got to it. But, so I, I feel like the Midnight Circus is, like, it's on it's, it's on a different level just because it's, like, that different style for comics in general. You're saying, uh, like, from a nostalgia point of view, it's just, yeah. it, it was so remarkable when you first saw it that that well, sticks out in your mind. Well, not just that, but, I mean, it's, it's, like, you know, it's, like, something that I have to take separate. But then when you get to the um, the Darkness Call, uh, the Wild Hunt and the Storm and the Fury, I feel like they're all just kind of continuations of the same right. story. And for me to kind of split them apart, I understand why why I probably should, or but other people do. But for me, I read it all as one. It's just, you know, building up. And then I would have to say, though, if, though, you were going to press me further, <laughs> it gets better as it goes along. And that's not to say that it, I just feel like it just gets more open. It gets more epic as it right. goes along. And right. then so that final battle between Hellboy and Nimue as the Audrey your head in the Fury and then when she rips his heart out and then, you know, and like I'm, I'm sitting there looking at that panel. Ah, that's an incredible page. Where she's like, you know, has pulled his heart out. It's falling and she's got all the witches below him. The big I mean, pile, yeah. it's like the darkness call on the wild hunt and the everything else was leading up to this just big right, giant yeah. reveal. 
And so I feel like it's like it's like you know you know like the darkness calls the beginning of the season with the wild hunt. I right. mean, with the fury being the end, it's like holy shit, that was amazing. Let's tune in choose? next season. How do you choose? <laughs> it's like the stars in the sky. It's like the grains of sand yeah. on the beach. It's like your children. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to pick the storm and the fury if I were pressed, just because of the amazing work in there and all the Nimue stuff is so awesome yeah. with that helmet and those panels of red oh, and everything enough of that, yeah. is is really amazing and then, and then just like you're talking about the whole death of Hellboy in those last couple of scenes I really love Hellboy and Alice together too all the scenes that they have together so yeah if I were pressed I'd have to pick that one so yeah listeners let us know you know we talked about a couple things let us know what some of your favorite scenes are um, if you had to pick a favorite story by Fregredo, let us know what that is, too. I'd love to hear that, and then we'll talk about it next week. If you have a Fregredo anecdote. Oh, yeah, like yeah. If you've that. met him or anything like that, Give yeah, please. Hey, you damn guys. Great suggestion. Yeah, thank you, Danielle. Or if you've gotten one of the, the sketches in his line of watch Yeah, sketchbook. give us a shout-out. Oh, share those, too. Share yeah, those. share those, to and, those. and tag us in them. Love to see that, yeah. And so I'll be sharing a bunch of Fregredo art this week. I'm also going to share that Bendigo sketch by Ben Stenbeck, so everybody can take a look at that as well. Did you have anything else, Matt, before we close out? Nope. Are, are, are we good? Are we good? <laughs> or, or I could go on forever. Yeah, one of the two. One of the two, okay. Yeah. So uh, we'll maybe do another one of these episodes in a couple weeks, you know, or so. We'll, we'll kind of see how it all plays Where out. Where we go bother another Where artist. we go bother another artist, depending on who I can bother online. So anyway, thank you so much, Duncan Fregredo, for giving us a piece of your time and answering these questions for us and just uh, just listening to the podcast. Yeah. The fact that yes, he even you. would listen is amazing. So go out and buy his work, you know, support him as an artist and check out some more stuff. If you haven't seen any of his covers or you're not familiar with some of his other work, you know, go check that out. He's a great artist and he's done a lot of good stuff outside of the Hellboy universe. Follow him on Instagram and on Twitter. On Twitter, I would say follow him on Twitter. Him on Twitter. He's, he's more active on there and he shares a lot of stuff with his art studio and yeah. drawings and all this the, kind of stuff. Cool so cool videos he posts of him drawing stuff. Yeah, and then, great. Um, and like John said, go buy his stuff. Go yeah, buy it. Throw some money at him. And we'll be back with another book club episode next week. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, buddy. So this was a different one uh, this time. Uh, so share us your thoughts about Duncan Fergredo and his awesomeness. What did you think of our interview with him? You can send us a Hey You Damn Guys at HellboyBookClub at gmail.com and follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. And the Discord link is on our Facebook page along with the reading order. Also, check out our friends and Mignolaverse for all the wonderful stuff that they're doing. And thank you, Paul, once again for that great theme. <laughs> You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from. And next week, we really are going to be talking about <laughs> BPRD, Hell on Earth, Return of the Master. And let me tell you, I actually went ahead and sneak pee read this one. You're going to love it. <laughs> so pull out your back issues, pull out your trades, pull out your omnibuses, time travel back in time, and watch them being printed off the printer and read them that way. Then <laughs> join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. I'm John Salinas. And I'm Danielle. And I'm Matt Trackbine. And I'm Aubrey Lovell saying, I got nothing for this week. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>